Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in European Politics. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Hans Kudnani, author of Euro Whiteness, Culture, Empire, and Race in the European Project, published on August the 17th by Hearst. He writes, quote, Today's pro-Europeans would be horrified at the suggestion that their idea of Europe had anything to do with whiteness. In fact, many would find the attempt to link the two baffling and outrageous. However, this book argues that not only is pro-Europeanism, quote, analogous to nationalism, something like nationalism, but on a larger continental scale, but the EU itself has become, quote, a vehicle for imperial amnesia and therefore promotes and privileges whiteness. Hans Gudnani is a fellow at the Open Society Foundation's workshop and an associate scholar at the Royal Institute of International Affairs at Chatham House. From 2018 to 22, he was full-time researcher at Chatham House, including as director of the Europe Programme. In 2014, he published a book, The Paradox of German Power. Hans, welcome. Thank you very much, Tim, for having me. Let's uh, let's start with your introduction. And there you describe Euro-whiteness as a rather personal book. Uh, can you yeah. explain why? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, obviously it's a book about Europe. Um, and the reason it's it's personal is because I think I probably have a quite particular relationship with um, Europe and European identity that has to do with my has to do with my family. Um, so my, my my father was Indian, uh, my mother's Dutch. Um, and so I have but I, but I but I'm British and I you know grew up in 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 London and you spent most of my life in in London so I'm sort of British through and through in that sense. And so I think my perceptions of Europe and the way I think about the idea of Europe and and you know the way in which I think about my own European identity, I suppose, I think has a lot to do with that background. Um, and in particular, you know, the, the fact that I have a, you know, one parent who is from uh, an EU member state, a founding EU member state, which I think in a way makes me think of myself probably as being more European than, you know, say a Brit who just has two British parents, right? It doesn't have any particular relationship with any other EU member state. But then on the other hand, you know, because of, because my father was Indian, um, you know, I have one parent who uh, is not from Europe, from, you know, the country outside of, of Europe that was colonized by Britain. And so, um, and so I've, I, you know, I think what that has meant for me is that I've always thought of myself as being European to some extent. And as I say, in some ways, more European than some Brits. Um, but at the same time, I've never been able to, my, to think of myself as, as being fully European, um, being 100% European, as, as I've heard some people describe themselves. And, and actually, that was, it was that sense of, you know, one of the things which first started, make, that, that made me start to think about some of these questions was precisely, the, the, you know, when, when, I, when I heard some of my colleagues at the European Council on Foreign Relations, this think tank, foreign policy think tank that you mentioned in your introduction, um, when I heard them sort of proudly describe themselves as being European, you know, I can remember, for example, a, a colleague of mine, German colleague, you know, who who had a kind of a, you know, a sticker on his, you know, I guess his, his sort of diary, his calendar or a notebook uh, that said, you know, I'm European, exclamation mark, in this kind of proud kind of way. And I found it quite difficult to relate to those kind of that sort of feeling of being proud of being European. And so I started to think about why that was. And in a way, as I say, I think that's kind of the little, a little bit the sort of beginning of the process that ultimately um, led to this book. As you say, you write that while you were at the uh, ECFR, you 
started to think that the founding story of the union was, quote, actually a myth and the product of a kind of self-idealization of the EU, uh, yeah. end quote. I mean, I did wonder when I read that, I, I've heard stories about, for example, Tucker Carlson was quite a normal conservative, and then he lived next door to some insufferable left-wing neighbours, and it sort of drove him mad. I wondered whether being surrounded by people who were just <laughs> excessively pro-European in a in a sort of uh, knee-jerk federalist way that perhaps made you... And Gisela Stewart was another example. Yeah. And she was, yeah. was there anything like that at ECFR? Well, God, I, God, I hope I'm not like Tucker Carlson. Um, I mean, Gisela Stewart, I can just about live with, but um, but uh, Tucker Carlson, not so much. I mean, I think there was a bit of that, uh, but but the way I think of it is slightly different in the sense that when I look back now, I realise that I didn't know very much about the EU, actually, when I first started working at ECFR, which was 2009. I thought I did in, in the way that I think a lot of people think they do, be precisely because there is a certain sort of idea of what the EU is and what it stands for that has become quite prevalent. And this is precisely what I mean by the self-mythologization. There's this sort of, in the first chapter of the book, I talk about the myth of cosmopolitan Europe. And this is the idea that the EU is an expression of cosmopolitanism. That, you know, is pretty central to this uh, way in which the EU is perceived, even by people who don't know it very well. So I think what happened was that when I was at ECFR, I sort of, you know, I, I sort of arrived there as basically a pro-European um, who basically thought the EU was a good thing, um, but without really actually knowing that much about it. And so then I guess two things happened at the same time. One was that I started to sort of learn more about the EU. I started to sort of go back and and, and read about its history much more and uh, and learn much more about how it functioned both internally and externally, in other words, beyond Europe. And, and so that sort of was part of why I think I started to sort of see this disconnect between the way that the EU is mythologized, the way that it's perceived, and then the, the reality of the, you know, the real existing EU, as it were. But then the second thing that was happening at the same time was this was a period of sort of transformation in the EU, you know, from the Euro crisis, it, which began in 2010 onwards. And so on the one hand, I was, you know, my own perception of the EU was changing, but at the same time, the EU was itself changing. <laughs> In a in a bad way, I I thought, and and so um, you know uh, the 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 second book that I wrote, which you mentioned, the paradox of German power, you know, very much came out of that moment, this sort of uh, Euro crisis moment, uh, and the, especially the debate about German power within the EU. Um, that was taking place at that time. And, and so I suppose in, in a sense, that was the sort of first stage in a way in, in, in me sort of rethinking Europe and, and essentially finding it harder and harder to, to identify with it in the way that I had done previously. And, and, and so, you know, in a way also the book was part of, part of the process of, of thinking about this stuff over the last couple of years and writing the book was also for me partly a process of trying to clear, clarify in my own mind how much of this was about the way that the EU has changed changed and how much of this is just about the way that my perceptions of the EU have changed um you know that was in a way part of why I wanted to write the book was to clarify some of that in my mind okay well we've uh, we've set the stage for for the writing of the book it's it's a short book and you take the reader through a historical journey through the development of the European identity from Christendom to the coincidence of the Enlightenment and colonialism to pan-European movement coming out of the First World War and where we've got to today since the Second World War and, and the Holocaust. Can you, can you take us through the argument in, a, in summary form? Yeah, so 
I guess that so basically what I was trying to do was look at ideas of Europe and European identity through history. And so the, ch the chapter two, which is basically what you're describing, tries to look at that story from classical antiquity through to World War II, essentially. And then the rest of the book looks at ideas of Europe in the context of the post-war integration project that becomes the EU. But chapter, the, the chapter, you know, chapter two sort of tries to look more historically at this. And in particular, I guess the story I tell is, uh, I mean, obviously there's this sort of prehistory in classical Greece, which is obviously where the, 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 the name Europe, Europa, comes from. But the the real story, I guess, begins in, in the medieval period, where what it means, you know, Europe is synonymous with Christendom, and what it means to be European is basically synonymous with, with being Christian. And the idea of, you know, the idea of a European identity emerges out of that kind of uh, medieval context where it's very much synonymous with Christianity. And gradually then, you know, the idea of Europe starts to sort of usurp, as one historian calls it, usurp the idea of Christendom or Christianity. Um, but during the medieval period, they're very, they're very much synonymous. And the embodiment of that medieval idea of European identity, which is synonymous with Christianity, is Charlemagne, you know, who remains, you know, this, this sort of icon for, for the current EU, right? Uh, I mean, in particular, something if you think about something like the Charlemagne Prize, you know, the most prestigious prize for pro-Europeans is awarded in the name of um, in the name of Charlemagne. So, so that's the kind of medieval idea of of Europe uh, and European identity. And then, what happens in the modern period is something much more uh, complicated, where you know, on the one hand, you have this emergence of a new sense of um, European identity, what Europe stands for, based on, you know, the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution and so on. So it's a sort of rational, rationalist idea of Europe as opposed to a religious one. And, and actually secularism itself becomes quite central to that, right? In contrast to the older medieval version uh, where Christianity was central. But at the same time as this rationalist kind of identity, one also has to understand the emergence of that modern European identity in the context of originally the sort of age of discovery or exploration, but then that becomes, you know, European colonialism. And, and in particular, the sort of encounter of Europeans with the uh, populations of Africa and Asia, and in particular the Americas. And in that context, the sort of more modern idea of Europe that emerges is also very closely connected to the idea of whiteness. The two concepts, the sort of modern idea of European identity and the idea of whiteness, you know, emerge roughly in the same kind of context and are quite closely connected again. And and so, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's it's in a way it's sort of, you know, sort of obvious that, you know, I think I think it's more obvious to people outside of Europe than it is to people within Europe. But it is kind of obvious that Europeanness and whiteness are sort of very closely connected. Um, one illustration of this that I often mention is that, you know, if you think about, say, apartheid South Africa, where you had, you know, benches, uh, some of which said um, whites only and some of which said Europeans only and it was, you know, understood that they meant the same thing, <laughs> you know, and, and but and that's an illustration of, I think, a wider uh, connection between those two kind of ideas. So, you know, that's really the argument in that sort of second chapter. And, and so what it basically tries to, to do is, is kind of set up the, the history of ideas of Europe 
before the European Union really gets going. And then the assumption that I think a lot of pro-Europeans make is that after 1945, you get this completely new idea of European identity that has nothing to do with these older uh, ideas that have to do with Christianity and whiteness. But I think, you know, if you think about this, you know, for five minutes, you start to realise that the history is much messier than this. And that actually these older, basically ethnic cultural ideas of Europe don't just disappear after 1945, but they continue and they inform the post-war European project itself. I'd like to come back to that elision between European regionalism and Euro-whiteness. But before that, could we discuss this new way of looking at European integration since the end of the Second World War in terms of empires rather than being built by empires rather than nation states? And you, you are now writing in what is developing as a tradition. People like Timothy Snyder, Megan Brown, Sina Larson are writing about this idea, which seems to me to be well borne out by the facts. But could you talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, here I should emphasise that that really I'm not saying anything at all original in this part of the argument, and I'm drawing on the work of other scholars, some of whom you've you've mentioned. I'm really just basically re- reproducing their work. And and what's what's extraordinary to me actually is that, as you say, you know, there have been multiple scholars now that have done this work on the basically the intersection of um, European colonialism with European integration. And yet, you know, and this has been going on for, you know, at least a decade. And and yet this hasn't penetrated at all into the sort of European policy world that I, to some extent, still inhabit, but certainly was inhabiting when I worked at ECFR. So if you tell people, and, you know, these are people who work on Europe and the EU, you know, it's a full-time job, right? And who consider themselves pro-Europeans and consider themselves experts in Europe and are quoted in the New York Times and so on. Um, if you if you um, tell them, you know, about this uh, early period of European integration, you know, which was in part about trying to consolidate French and Belgian colonies in West Africa and Central Africa, um, that that was part of the original point of the uh, of the European project. I, you know, I call it um, the original sin of, of European integration uh, in my book. They're simply not aware of this history at all. They have, you know, essentially a very ahistorical idea, you know, of of the early phase of the European of European integration. This is what I meant about the self mythologization, right? In particular, this idea of the EU as a peace project, you know, which is not completely wrong. It's just it's very uh, incomplete uh, in the sense that at the moment when you know Rob, when Robert Schuman announces the Schuman plan, which is often seen as the beginning of the EU as a peace project, um, you know France is is fighting a brutal colonial war in Indochina, and similarly, you know, in 1957 when the Treaty of Rome is signed, France is fighting a brutal colonial war in Algeria. Um, you know, so the idea that uh, Europeans, you know, simply renounced war after 1945 and embraced this idea of peace is, you know, as I say, is 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 very incomplete. Um, what they'd essentially decided to do was to renounce war uh, between each other, but certainly not uh, in the world beyond um, Europe. So, you know, that's all, as, as I say, you know, been been shown very very clearly and, and very persuasively by, by, you know, by by multiple scholars. The probably the most important book I think on this is uh, Pio Hansen, Stefan Jonsson, Your Africa, um, which you know wasn't the first account of this, but is you know I think the most definitive account of um, this 
thing that was called the Eurafrica project, which was precisely about, you know, European integration, but including Africa as Europe's plantation. I mean, that language was was used. And, uh, you know, that, you know, as I say, that, that, that's been shown very clearly. We, we know now about the colonial origins of the EU. But what's extraordinary and part of what prompted me to write this book was it doesn't seem to have penetrated, you know, beyond academia uh, into, the, into the policy world. Uh, coming to the the elision between regionalism, which I think you make a very fine point there, which is that uh, many pro-Europeans, and you know I would add myself to that uh, cohort, probably would consider themselves internationalists and cosmopolitan, whereas in fact what they are is regionalist. It's a very big region, but that is what we are. And I, I would also accept that Europe has historically been everything you said, but I wonder whether it is in its nature that thing and you, for example you you quote this uh, american hungarian sociologist uh, josef burich yeah talking about euro whiteness uh, but also how eastern european central and eastern european countries in their craving to join the european union qualified as as having something called dirty whiteness which was aspirational and seeking acceptance to the to the in group it, it felt to me that that was a concept too far, that uh, Central Eastern Europeans, and, and now you're seeing it with Ukrainians and Georgians and Moldovans, yes, by being outside the European Union, they consider themselves to be second-class Europeans, and there is certainly a there is a strain of thought within the European Union that would probably agree with that. But why does it have to be defined in terms of whiteness or dirty whiteness? Isn't it just an in-group and an out-group? Okay, so there's a few different things there. So let me start with this question of the sort of evolution of the EU, because I think I think you're right that, or at least I agree with you, that having sort of established now the colonial origins of the EU, I think the question does then become, okay, so then what happens after uh, those French and Belgian colonies in Central and West Africa become independent roughly in 1960? And there are a number of different ways of thinking about that, and 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 it's a complicated story. And and what I try to do in in the remaining sort of chapters in the book after that is to try to give one interpretation of what's happened to the EU after that. But it's not at all meant. It's not meant to be definitive at all. It's not even you know complete. It's a short book, as as you mentioned. But I guess roughly, you know, I guess that has now, in a way, I think, become the sort of default pro-European position. Once you accept, because it's impossible to deny it, that the, that the EU was, you know, at the beginning, a colonial project, when you can no longer sort of reject that, deny that, then the the sort of default, I think, pro-European position becomes... Well, okay, yes, it may have been like that at the beginning, but then basically after after 1960, it stopped being a colonial project. I think what you you know what you I don't I don't get into this in much detail in the book, but I think if you know you you if you look at um, particularly France's relationship with its former colonies in Africa after they've become formally independent, I think it becomes quite difficult to deny that there is a neo-colonial elements to French policy, but then also that, that gets that becomes part of the EU's approach to to Africa. If you think about, say, something like the CFA Frank, um, there's a fantastic book on this, um, came out a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Africa's Last Colonial Currency, it's called. And this has now, you know, become sort of a, a, an issue at, at the moment with discussion around creating West African Currency Union, partly to escape from the CFA Frank, 
you know, that that's just one illustration of, I think, you know, the, the, the way in which one, one needs to at least think about some of the continuities after formal decolonization. This story doesn't just kind of end at that point. The story I try to tell in the book is a slightly, you know, focus on different aspects. And in particular, it tries to look at the way that after the loss of those colonies, there is the beginning, I think, uh, of a much more civic idea of Europe, which focuses on things like um, the social market economy and the welfare state, and also the sort of depoliticized mode of governance that that European integration creates. And then the way the sort of story develops later on is is that in the last decade or so, I think um, the EU is sort of moving away from that civic identity back to something more ethnic and cultural again. But that's at least the sort of the the interpretation of story of European integration that I have in the book um, after the the loss of those um, colonies, after the end of the EU as a colonial project. And then a part of that story is that is the, the other thing you asked about, which is the role of enlargement and in particular the enlargement in the 2000s to include Central and Eastern European countries, the so-called Big Bang enlargement. And I think there's quite a complicated story to tell there, but it roughly, I suppose, has two sides to it. On on the one hand, you know, it's clearly true that the that the Western Europeans basically look down on Central and Eastern Europeans. And they basically I mean, the way that the EU puts it was that, you know, as it does with all accession countries, is that they need to do structural reform. But I mean, the EU does this even with EU member states, I suppose, in the context of the Eurozone especially, but certainly with accession countries, um, they need to do structural reform. But you can also think about that whole process in terms of of kind of a civilizing mission, essentially. And there's a academic Jan Jelonka, who was at Oxford for many years at St. Anthony's, who made this argument that um, the EU had a kind of a new postmodern civilizing mission in its neighbourhood after the end of the Cold War. And, and that, I think, in turn fits into a longer story going back to the Enlightenment of the way that Western Europeans have basically looked down on Central and Eastern Europeans as being in need of civilization. But there's also a flip side to this, which is, um, you know, I guess more from the perspective of those Central and Eastern European countries themselves. And it's captured in particular by this idea of the idea of a return to Europe. I mean, the the, the accession of those uh, Central and Eastern European countries, Poland and so on, uh, to the EU was thought of by people in those countries as being a return to Europe. And I think it's a really interesting sort of enigmatic kind of phrase, uh, return to Europe, because if you actually um, start to think about what it means, and in particular, if you ask, well, in what sense is it a return to Europe? In what sense were they returning to Europe? You know, in other words, the, the idea of a return to Europe says that there's something that they were once part of, which they're now rejoining, right? But if the argument of pro-Europeans that the, the EU represented this kind of break with European history. And so what is created after 1945 is this completely new idea of European identity that has nothing to do with these older ethnic cultural ideas of European identity and is really just about, you know, the social market economy and the welfare state and the depoliticized mode of governance that the EU stands for. Then Central Eastern European countries were not returning to that because they were nev they'd never been part of that at all. 
So the implication of the phrase a return to Europe is that the Europe that they were returning to was a Europe that's understood in a slightly different kind of way, a kind of civilizational kind of way. Um, and that's why I then suggest drawing on uh, Josef Boris's work, that there's a way in which we can think of the return to Europe as a kind of return to whiteness. I mean, that's a very interesting point in terms of the return to Europe. But again, I would I would quibble with that because I would I see maybe and this is certainly the case with Viktor Orban and, and Kaczynski. That's certainly the Europe they want to, in quotes, return to. They want to return to a, a Christian Europe and they want to put the Western European liberals right and uh, and and restore Christendom. But of course, the, these countries are not one thing and they're not static. You know, half of, as you saw with the presidential vote in Poland a few years ago, Poland is as split between regions and between metropolitan areas and rural areas as as, as the UK is, as the US is, that, that essentially, yes, there's, there's one group of right or centre-right parties and voters in these countries that are looking for a, a restoration. And then there's another part, and you're seeing it in, in Ukraine, you're seeing it in Moldova, of people people who are craving that uh, rule of law, uh, liberalism, uh, and so on. So I, I wonder whether you're looking at these issues maybe statically rather than dynamically. And clearly it is a, you know, it is a complicated story in each of these different countries. And then, as you say, there are different currents within each of these countries. So yes, of course, it's a complicated story. But I suppose my, my response to you would be that I think the view that I'm describing is more widespread than you're suggesting. It's not just Auburn. I mean, in any case, you know, Auburn's an interesting case, right? Because he, because he didn't, he wasn't always like this, oh. right? You know, his views have evolved over time, you know, and one of the expressions, one of the, the, the you know, sort of manifestations of that was the way that you know, he was in the European People's Party for a very, very long time, right? Um, he became more radical over time. And I think one has to uh, try to interrogate what happened, why that happened. And I think a lot of the writing that you see about this on Hungary and Poland that focuses on the concept of populism, I'm thinking here of, you know, Anne Applebaum and people like that, they really have nothing to say about what, about, about how and why this happened, except these are some bad people, right? So I sort of sometimes think of this as a sort of stupid people and bad people thesis that they were, you know, that basically, you know, what's happened in our politics over the last decade, as you say, not just in Poland and Hungary, but in Western European countries or in the United States as well, is that there were some stupid people and the stupid people got duped by the bad people. And um, that seems to me, entirely inadequate as an explanation of what happened. I think we have to, and this is in a, in a small way, what I was doing in that section of the book on um, Central and Eastern Europe and on the, on the enlargement process, is I think we have to go back and look again at that history in the 1990s to try to understand how it produced Auburn and peace in Poland. Um, and I think part of the answer to that question, I don't want to overstate it, but I think part of the answer to that question is that some of these more problematic um, ethnic cultural ideas of Europe were there from the beginning and not just among the far right. So I mentioned briefly, you know, uh, this very famous essay that Milan Kundera writes mm. in the 1980s, which, you know, coincidentally you know, has just been republished uh, and, you know, it, it, people are discussing it again, also in the context of the war in Ukraine and so on. You know, and this idea of, you know, a civilization in Europe is very much there in Kundera. And Kundera is not, you know, the person you would necessarily associate with Viktor Orban or with peace in Poland now. So I think some of these, some of these ideas of a sort of a sort of civilizational Europe are actually much more prevalent in Central and Eastern European countries. And I think you're stressing one one example of that is, you know, one of the immediate consequences 
of um, the enlargement uh, in the in the 2000s was to strengthen the block of countries that wanted to write into the European constitution, which was then being developed. You know, ultimately it was rejected by voters in France and, and the Netherlands and then got repackaged as the Lisbon Treaty. But, uh, you know, uh, at that time, the, the, the enlargement of Central and East, to include Central and Eastern European countries, had the effect of strengthening the block of countries that wanted to write into the European constitution that Europe was Christian, that that is part of, you know, what Europe stands for and, and what its identity is. Um, and as I say, that, that, that wasn't yet, you know, these kind of far-right populist governments in those countries like Poland. This was, you know, governments that we would now think of as being centrist and standing for all the things you mentioned, the rule of law and liberalism and, and so on. So I, th- I think it's, you know, th- these these ideas are more prevalent than you're suggesting. Well, again, I think those things were always there. You know, Adenauer <clears throat> and European Christian right. democracy generally, um, many of the founders of the European Union, that's exactly how they saw it. They saw it as a as a bulwark against atheistic communism. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and so, so really, you know, and I, and I talk about that in the book in that early period of European integration. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a little bit reductive, but the story I'm roughly telling is that those elements of a sort of Christian Europe were very much there from the beginning. It was a big part of what was driving the early phase of European integration. And then I think they get a bit diluted over the next few few decades. And then my whole argument is they've in the last, you know, decade in particular, but I think this does go back to, you know, has a slightly longer history going back to the end of the Cold War and so on. These ethnic cultural elements uh, in European identity get stronger, and a part of that story, again, I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but I think a part of that story is the um, accession of Central and Eastern European countries, which have strengthened those uh, basically civilizational tendencies within the EU. Well, another part of the story, and you, you make an interesting point here, and it's one of your core arguments, I think, is that you say, quote, as economic policy has been depoliticized yeah. within the EU, political contestation has shifted to issues around identity, immigration and Islam, uh, end quote. So can you talk us through that? Yeah. And yeah. is that is that that was your sort of turning point from 2010 onwards, I guess? Yeah, and 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 this is part of a much bigger story, right? So in a way, like with quite a few of these questions that we're discussing, I just kind of touch on these things, but I don't get into into huge depth. But there is, I suppose, a sort of yeah, a sort of one of the sort of themes in the in the in the story I tell about the evolution of the EU in the last you know few decades is you know has to do with this shift from basically economic questions this, you know being salient in our politics to cultural questions becoming more salient and this isn't only a european story um i mean clearly for example in the united states you know this is what is referred to in the us as the culture wars this has you know also been a trend elsewhere but i think there is a particular european version of this story which has to do with the which has to do with the eu but I think it, it it forms part of this broader story that's also happening in slightly different forms elsewhere in the context of, I guess, hyper-globalisation. Um, and I've always thought of European integration as a kind of, a sort of an extreme form, albeit in a regional context of hyper-globalisation. Because if you think of um, hyper-globalisation, or think of globalisation rather, as the removal, removal of barriers to the movement of capital and goods and people... Obviously, there are different ways of thinking about globalization, but if you think about it that way, then 
clearly the EU has gone much further in that direction, albeit within, as I say, this regional context than the rest of the world has. So you can think of, I think, European integration as being something like hyper-regionalization. And, and then you would expect that it would have the same, it would produce the same backlash as hyper-globalization elsewhere is produced, but in a way, in a more extreme form directed against the EU itself. That's, I think, roughly the way I think of how the EU fits into this kind of global story. And one of the features, I think, of how, of, of that kind of backlash and, and of, 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 of hyper-globalization or hyper-regionalization and then the, the backlash against it is that basically everywhere, but as I say, in an even more extreme way in the EU, I think we've had this shift away from economic questions being at the centre of our political debates to cultural questions replacing them. And... I think, and, and this is, you know, as I say, it's, it's a much broader argument, and other people have made this, this argument uh, as well, that a, a big part of the story is that what happens is that if you take economic, if you take economic policy out of the space of, space of democratic contestation, and as I say, I think that's happened to, to some extent elsewhere in the world, but it's really happened within the EU, particularly with the creation of, you know, the, the single currency and the fiscal rules and so on that really have removed economic policy from the space of democratic contestation, then I think it's to some extent inevitable that political contestation shifts to um, cultural issues. I mean, if you can't argue about the economy and economic policy and real alternatives for economic policy anymore, then you're going to end up arguing um, about culture. And so, you know, to put it very simply, um, there's a way in which neoliberalism produces identity politics, I think. If you think of neoliberalism, not just in terms of sort of financialization and so on, but in terms of um, this encasing of economic policy, as Quinn Slobodian describes it in his book Globalists, um, you know, which is another way of, as I say, taking economic policy out of the space of democratic contestation, protecting it from democratic interference, then I think you're going to get identity politics in your in in your uh, democratic um, politics in, instead, and I think that's a big part of what's happened in 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 the EU in the last couple of decades. And then, in particular, the story I tell in the book is is how you know the refugee crisis in in 2015 becomes this kind of turning point where the EU had already thought of itself as being increasingly threatened. You know, in the uh, five five years or so between the beginning of the euro crisis and the refugee crisis, but then after the refugee crisis, it increasingly starts to imagine the threats to it in these cultural kind of ways that have to do with um, identity and immigration and Islam and so on. As the far right um, gets more powerful in Europe and, and pushes in this direction, and then centre right parties in particular start to to mimic them and, and copy their um, their rhetoric uh, and their policies. Um, so there's this sort of European version, I think, of this broader story of a sort of shift from contestation over economic questions to contestation over um, uh, cultural questions. Well, as a final question, but it's a big one, I I felt there was a, reading the book, I felt there was one big missing actor, and that was the minority population in the European Union. I mean, uh. it's, a, it's estimated at 10% of, of the population. Okay, if this is a fraction of, of the minority population in the US, but it's still significant. And um, it particularly jumped out at me when I read your chapter on Brexit yeah. and the attitudes of minority voters in the referendum. You, you make the point 
that a third of minority voters voted for Brexit. And of course, when I read that, the, f- the first thing that jumped into my head, well, that means that two thirds didn't, which is uh, which is actually larger than the result as a whole. And I actually looked at the polling and also the the research you quote from uh, Nima Begum. Yeah. And while white voters voted to leave by 53 to 47, Asian mixed race voters voted to remain by 67.33. That went up to 73.27 for black voters. And what was especially interesting to me in the Begum survey was that essentially people were motivated by the same things. It, it, uh, it was the same kind of cohort, young people who were more professional, better educated, who traveled more in Europe, tended to vote remain. And the people who voted leave tended to be older, people who traveled less in Europe and so on. So, again, I, I wonder whether I, I agree with so many of the points you make about the history of Europe and, and, and even the, you know, the whiteness of representation in Brussels, for example. But there is this minority population that in many ways has similar attitudes on Europe to yeah. uh, the white population, but in fact more so. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be interested to hear your views on that. So um, it's, it's a good question to end on. I'm glad, you know, we sort of bring in the, the British uh, dimension of this. Um, and, and by the way, it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, the, the book only comes out next week, but I'm already starting to have some discussions about it. And I can already, I can already sense that, um, uh, you know, and this was, I slightly expected this, that there would be quite a few people in the UK who would sort of be with me for the first five chapters when I talk about the EU and some of these issues that we've been discussing around the history of the EU and so on. But then in my final chapter on Brexit, I sort of lose them because they, they wouldn't quite sort of um, uh, come with me on that final. Oh, no, final. you lost me before that. Don't worry. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, so, okay, so on on Brexit and, and on the the question of ethnic minorities in the UK and their attitudes to Brexit and to the EU. So, look, I mean, first of all, you know, part of what I was trying to do in that last chapter was just to sort of put this issue on the table because, you know, this has essentially been um, fairly absent from the, you know, the discussions we've had around Brexit uh, in the last seven years or so, you know, and in particular, the, you know, leave is so associated with the white working class um, there's this tendency to sort of forget that it was actually much more complicated than that, and there were other people uh, who don't belong to the white working class who were who were voting for 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 leave for all kinds of reasons. You're absolutely right that actually, in a way, the striking thing about the about the the sort of raw numbers of you know leave and remain voters, you know, among uh, basically black and Asian Britain's black and Asian population, are pretty similar to the country as a whole. And I do basically agree that the main thing that was driving their votes was was actually not their ethnicity. It was the same set of factors that caused other Brits to vote either leave or remain. I think I make that point uh, in the book. But I think if you go a little bit further, I, I, I think there are two things that are quite important. The first is that you know, and and this is, I think, the first is is what I think the Nima Begum research shows. I have I've you know read it perhaps slightly differently than you. I think it shows that although many Black and Asian voters uh, voted either leave or remain for the same reasons as uh, white voters did, for some of them at least, there were particular concerns that set them apart from uh, white voters. You know, so in particular, they some some look at you know questions around um, Islamophobia and the refugee crisis in 2015 um, in slightly different ways than uh, than than certainly than have been attributed to leavers. 
But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, I think you have to go beyond the, the sort of raw numbers in terms of who voted leave and re- leave or remain, because as I say, it does roughly, it looks pretty similar to the white population of the UK. I think the more interesting question is a way is, is if you look at the attitudes of black and Asian Brits that did vote to remain, and I'm one of them, by the way. So, you know, again, this is, you know, we've come full circle because this is slightly the personal aspect of this as, as well for me. I think what's what's pretty clear, and there's lots of research that shows this, but I think also just anecdotally, I think this is very clear. And it was clear to, I think, Black and Asians long before the Brexit vote happened in 2016, uh, that Black and Asian Brits vote, they identify with Europe even less than white Brits do. So even those that voted Remain... It wasn't that they were passionate pro-Europeans. Now, obviously, I'm generalising here, right? Because uh, no, that was in the research. You're, you're quite right. Yeah. You know, so, so clearly, there are some that were right, but but broadly, uh, broadly, the, the, I think the important thing here is that Black and Asian Brits just identify with the idea of Europe and with the idea of being European much less than white people do in Britain. Um, and and this is for exactly the reasons that I you know outline at the beginning of of of, of my book in that personal introduction that you described. Um, there's a way in which the idea of Britishness can absolutely include somebody whose family comes from the Caribbean or from Africa or from the Indian subcontinent. Britishness is quite inclusive, and in, at least it's become inclusive in that way um, over the course of you know basically during the course of my lifetime. You know, to a large extent, as a, as a consequence of the struggles of Black and Asian people in Britain to expand the definition of Britishness, so that it could well, include. Right? Interestingly, Englishness less so, right? Well, Englishness, right? Yeah. Exactly. So Englishness is not quite there yet, and this is obviously something that you hear a lot of people say. Is I can think of myself yeah. as British. I struggle to identify as English. I think I think that's actually changing now as well. Uh-huh. But but you're absolutely right. Britishness uh, has long been perceived by Black and Asian Brits as being a more inclusive identity than Englishness. But the crucial point here is is that it's 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 more inclusive than Europeanness, right? That it's easier for Black and Asian Brits to think of themselves as being British for sort of complicated kind of historical reasons than it is for them to think of themselves as being European. And 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 so I guess in a way, what I'm trying to suggest in the book, I didn't quite spell this out, but I'm suggesting that. Black and Asian Brits intuitively understood something about the EU that most Brits um, most Brits didn't. To finish, as usual, because this is a podcast about books, I've asked my guests to recommend two, one broadly from their field and one personal choice. So Hans, what have you chosen? The first book is one I've actually already mentioned, and it's absolutely uh, central to um, the issues that I talk about in my book, and it's this book by P.O. Hansen and Stefan Jonsson uh, called Your Africa, which came out in 2014. So as I say, it's almost a decade old now. And, you know, this was, it was transformative for me uh, as part of that process um, that we discussed of sort of trying to understand the real history of the EU and, and, and to move beyond that sort of self-mythologization of the EU. So this book, Your Africa, basically uh, is the definitive account of the way in that that intersection between um, the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of final period of European colonialism and the, the early period of European integration shows how the two things are interconnected, and in particular around this sort of Eurafrica idea, this idea that what European integration was doing was not just um, uh, integrating um, nation states, but was actually integrating imperial states. Um, hugely important book. 
I'm hugely indebted to uh, Pia Hansen and, and Stefan Jonsson. Um, it absolutely influenced my work. And again, to come back to a point that I made earlier on, what I find absolutely extraordinary is how few how few people in the policy space have even heard of that book, let alone read it, which they absolutely all should have done. So that's my that's my sort of um, book that's most closely related to um, the uh, the argument in my book. And then my second choice, the more personal choice, which is kind of connected to this and actually connected a little bit to what we were just discussing about Britain, uh, is one of my favourite novels. Uh, it's by Sam Selvon. It's called The Lonely Londoners. Uh, came out in, I think, 1956. Uh, and it's basically the first black British novel. Um, it's about um, the Windrush generation. Sam Selvon was from Trinidad. And he basically describes um, the lives of um, it's a very, very short book, uh, very short novel. It basically describes the lives of this first generation of mainly Caribbean men, young men that came to Britain uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and um, and I love it partly because it's set in the part of West London that I live in. And so it gives you this incredible um, picture of what um, of what Labrick Grove and, and these places places around here were like in, in at, at that time. But it also um, it just really captures the uh, as I say the, the lives of that first generation of people that you can see in retrospect really transformed Britain. Um, but at the time, the way they experienced it was as this you know day to day struggle to kind of. Um, to to kind of live and survive, basically. Um, it's very moving, uh, very, very funny as well, um, and uh, it's one of my favourite novels. Great. Well, they're, they're both new to the to the tip sheet, so thanks for that. Um, today I've been talking to Hans Gunnani about Euro-whiteness, published by Hearst on August the 17th. Hans, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun talking to you.